0: Good morning. Happy New Year. As I reflected upon the song we just sang, you know, we have New Year's resolutions, right? And New Year's resolutions are meant to inspire people to move towards the person they want to be. Of course, in our culture, we have predictable reoccurring themes every year. January, they say the gyms pack out, and everybody's signing up for weight loss. (laughs) How cool would it be if our goal would be just to worship this great God? I mean, let that be the person that we want to be. To love the way Christ love and let that be our defining witness. And what about making a resolution that says, you know, I just want Jesus to leak out through me into the world. God never intended our relationship with him to be an afterthought. So why not choose love? And not any kind of love, but choose the love the way Jesus loved you and me and us. Amen? We're going back to Colossians, so you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. We did Colossians 1 this fall. As you're turning there, I remember growing up at least a little bit on how to ride a bike. I remember more teaching my kids how to ride. And you know, at first, it was completely unnatural. There was the training wheel stage. Then there was a stage where you took them off and the front wheel would wobble back and forth, trying to pedal and steer at the same time. You know, sometimes they would kind of go into a tree. Somewhere along the way, we all wrecked. Amen? But you know, eventually with practice, You learned how to ride. And after practice and riding, you would just climb on and you wouldn't even think about it. You would just ride. As we're going through our book, Colossians, we're going to be learning a lot of different stuff we have and we are going to. And the challenge that Paul gives to us is to live differently. And it's sort of like riding a bike. At first, We need training wheels, and when the training wheels come off, it's wobbly because it just doesn't feel natural, and we get banged up a lot because it's counterintuitive. It's a counterculture to the way we were raised, the way we thought, the lies, and everything coming at us constantly. So at first, it just does not feel and seem normal. But after a while, you kind of just know how to do it. So I want to encourage you, as we continue through Colossians, just keep practicing. You will get the hang of it. You know, Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 4. You can see them on the screen. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things we put into our heads what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. So he is practicing what he preaches. Then he says this, practice these things. Now, I hope you understand that when he says practice these things, it's not always in our psyche and makeup to think about what's honorable, to think about what's just, to think about what's pure. Our minds kind of go off in different directions, don't they? Especially when we encounter difficult circumstances or situations that we feel really are not just in our cause. But Paul says, listen, as a follower in Christ, I want you to practice these things. And as a result, the God of peace. And there's another way to translate that. It's God's peace will be with you. He gives us peace in the midst of often very difficult circumstances. So the passage we're going to look at this morning is the first five verses of Colossians chapter 2. And Paul's going to talk about some things we need to practice. And I want you to think about two concepts as we go down through this that help us understand this passage. I want you to think about a guard. You know, someone who guards things. And I want you to think about a gardener. A gardener is a farmer, is someone that cultivates so things are encouraged to grow. So think about those two word pictures as we go down through this passage. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So the question, not the question, but what he's talking about here is the fact that he's talking and writing to a group of people that he has not seen. But he's expressing his heart. And I want to ask you this question this morning then. What do you struggle for? Now, this word here, struggle, we saw it in 1 Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 20. I'm going to read it to you. Just listen. He goes, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone, again, the guard and the gardener, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling. He literally says, for this I struggle, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Not my energy, but his energy. So his struggle, the power for him to struggle comes from Christ and not himself. Because he would burn out, he would give up, he'd say, I quit. Now the word here, struggle, literally means to struggle to the point of exhaustion. And I want you to think about an athletic event. Doesn't matter which, but if you ever participated and you give, it all your, you give it your all, and when you don't think you can go anymore, there's two minutes left. And the coach says something like this, I want you to get out in the field. I want you to give it anyway. And we love those movies, don't we, where people overcome incredible odds against everything that could happen. There's a story that's been on YouTube for quite a long time about Derek Redmond He was a Britain runner back in the 1992 Olympics. He qualified for the semifinal 400. He was the fastest in his heat. He was favored to win a medal. But during the race, at the 150-meter mark, he came up lame. Later, it found out that he tore his hamstring. He went down on his knees in pain. And rather than quit, he looked up and he saw that his fellow runners had already crossed the line. And he started hobbling towards the finish. Now, what's surprising about the story is that he did not have to finish the race alone. And they captured this on video. His father ran out of the stands, brushed off security, tried to keep him away, and came alongside his son. And here's what he said to his son. Derek, you don't have to do this. You have nothing to prove. Derek looked at his dad and said, yes, I do. Then his father responded, then we're going to finish this race together. So what do you struggle for in life? And who do you struggle with? That is equally as important. But here's the lesson. The lesson is you will struggle. Are you struggling for the right things? You do not struggle alone. Do you have the right people around you who will struggle with you towards the right things? Now, Paul says he struggles for the maturity of the people he has not seen. And we could talk all morning about what's going on in Laodicea. I don't want to park there. Where I want to park is what I want you to think about is what is going on inside you. And what's going on inside of GBC here? So listen to what Paul says he struggled for. Let look at verse two and three. He really lists four things here. And again, this is what he struggles for. This is his gardener. This is where he desires them to grow. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we literally could spend an entire morning on each one of these, but let me break them down. Encouragement. This is not flattery. This is not compliments. Encouragement is a concept that moves people to who and where God wants them to be. Encouragement doesn't mean that we're not going to have to say difficult things. But encouragement is always done in the context of story and relationships. Encouragement is where we genuinely seek to help the other person to achieve their God-given design and potential. There's a business book I have on my shelf. It's called The No Complaining Rule. I remember giving it to a board at a church I was at one time, not this church. And uh, the one guy came to me afterwards and says, I'm not going to read this. He says, you're just, trying to, you're just trying to get us not to complain about you. I says, read the book. That's not what it's about. It's a story about how a workplace was transformed by a simple rule. They decided they weren't going to complain. Now, it didn't mean they couldn't express their disagreements. It didn't mean that they didn't have tension over new ideas. But it took what James chapter 5, verse 9 said. Do not grumble. Now, you know better than anybody else whether you have this tendency, and you know what you have this tendency towards. I think a great New Year's resolution would be decide not to complain or grumble what you normally complain and grumble about. It's real quiet when I said that. Encouragement. Then he talks about unity of love. You know, love is the binding force. It's not the kind of love that we're accustomed to. It's love given by Christ. It's love empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a love that's not dependent on our circumstances. It's a love that's not self-centered. I talked about this last week in the entire message. So I encourage you, if you want to find out more about this, go back and listen to last week. Then there's enrichment. I mean, look at the beautiful words in this passage. To reach all the riches of full assurance in whom are hidden all the treasures. It's understanding what we have in Christ. It's understanding what we sang about, how great is our God. It's understanding the blessings, the inheritance. It redefines riches. I know we all get excited about money here, but this is far beyond any kind of money or material things that exist. So Paul says, I want you to understand how Christ enriches your life. And then he talks about enlightenment. You look at the key words, wisdom, understanding. There's the mystery, which is Christ. And we'll hear more about that in sermons to come. But here's what Paul's saying. I want to help you grow in these four areas. In a culture that puts you down, in a culture that feeds you lies and empty promises, In a culture full of false information that creates misdirection, in a culture where Christ does not exist because people want to play God. I know that sounds like our culture, doesn't it? (laughs) People without Christ have similar habits, don't they? Similar defaults. But he says, I want you to grow in Christ. That's the gardener side of Paul. He wants to plant, he wants to water. He wants to nourish. But Let's go back to the word guard for a moment. Look at verse four. He was to say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And again, we're going to talk more about this in future messages, but we're on guard. Why? Because weeds can choke out the real thing. Any gardener knows that. He says, be careful that people don't delude or deceive, lie to you. And I like this next phrase. He says, they use plausible arguments. You know what a plausible argument is? It sounds good. It sounds right. In fact, our emotional makeup, we're saying, yeah, that's the way it ought to be because it makes me feel good. Now, let me give two illustrations. I might get in trouble doing this, but I'll do it anyway. That I hear often. One has to do with the health and wealth doctrine. We have celebrities in America that preach this and get very wealthy off of it. Some of it is biblical. But when you understand deception, when you understand delusion, when you understand plausible arguments, 90% may be truth, but it mixes it with 10% deception. And again, we have big celebrities in this field I have friends, and there's a particular wealth and health celebrity, and they say we like listening to him because he makes me feel good. I love his stories, he's so nice and positive. But I heard him interviewed in 2020 one time, and I my my heart was broken at what he said. When the announcer challenged him, saying, Listen, so you believe that if you follow Jesus, if you're mature in Jesus, He'll give you all this stuff. And he goes, absolutely. He goes, what do you say to the persecuted Christians around the world who have nothing? What do you say to the ones that are living in poverty because of what a dictator has done in their country? What do you say to all these Christians around the world that don't have your millions and millions of dollars? And here's what he said. He goes, all I can tell you is this works for me. What we fail to understand is that teaching mocks our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted, who live in poverty, who are hunted down like animals for their faith. It is the height of arrogance for us to believe that somehow we are healthy and wealthy because we live more holy than they do. I've walked with other people in other countries who are living in far more difficult circumstances than we are. And I will say they are far more mature than I am. And we are. So that's one of the plausible arguments. The other, and we see this all around us today, is what's called identity politics. It's where we spiritualize our party's affiliation with Christ. And then our God becomes our party's allegiance and not our allegiance to Jesus. Show me one verse in scripture that says Jesus belongs to anyone except his father. Can I get a name in on that one? <laughs> People vote for a variety of reasons. We know the information coming our way is biased, and we choose our viewpoints that suit our perceptions. But our faith, if we're going to grow up, rests in Jesus Christ alone. It is the reality that God is high and exalted, sitting on his throne. And to me, it's about time that we live it. We don't live our politics. We live our Jesus. Amen? People are seeking something and someone different. Far too often, though, when people come to church, they simply get a religious version of the world. And that's not what they're looking for. So, While we garden things, we also have to guard against things. Listen to how Paul ends this in verse 5. says, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is what he celebrates. I mean, he was a Roman citizen. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He lived for all the wrong things. And now he chooses to live for Christ. I love a scene in the early church. Peter and John are off preaching. And remember prior to the resurrection and prior to the Holy Spirit coming, you know, Peter was one of these guys that just he had a good heart, but he always got it wrong. But here we see Peter and John, they're off preaching. The crowd is made up of people, priests, captain of the temple, Sadducees. And of course, there's some that liked what they said. There's some that didn't like what they were saying. And so the people in authority had them arrested. And they said, well, throw them in prison for a night. Maybe that'll change their mind. Maybe that'll deter them, take some of the wind out of their seams. And next day, they bring in all the big shots. It's called the council. There's a trial. And the question they asked them was this. What power or name do you do this? And without a heartbeat, they start saying, listen, it's about Jesus, <laughs> who you killed. I mean, how would you like that being on trial? And They're like turning the tables. But they said, God raised him up. You didn't do that. He did that. And salvation is only through this Jesus. There is no other God. He cut right through all their plausible arguments. And then it says this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, I love this. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. But here's the phrase that I love. And they recognized that they had been with who? Jesus. Now, the end note of that is that 5,000 people accepted Christ that day. Um, They recognized they had been with Jesus. I have to tell you, that's in my heart for GBC. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, and we're not going to get it right a lot of the times. I don't think we have to feel failure Fear failure. I think we have to fear being successful at the wrong things. But on our knees in humility, no matter what happens, people say, you know, they are a people that are with Jesus. So what are you willing to struggle for? What are you willing to fight for? I used a phrase early in my ministry, don't know where I got it from, but it came to me when I was approaching very difficult circumstances. The phrase went like this, is this worth going to the wall for? In other words, is this worth fighting through for? And I was dealing with a situation in a church that nobody was willing to deal with for 35 years, and it was wounding and hurting, and it really was minimizing the name of Jesus. Now, I have to tell you, when I apply that test, the answer usually comes up with people. All the systems, all the ideas, all the things that that I like kind of get set aside saying, you know what? That really isn't that important. But you know what? This person is. Today, what people often fight for, what they struggle for, usually has to do with stuff and money. You know, we took communion this morning. In communion, we declare that Christ is our center. In communion, we declare that Christ is who and what we fight for. Amen? So, in our lives and in our churches, let's make 2020 a season where we garden, but we also guard. May it be a season that we encourage, that we enrich that we enlighten, that there is this incredible love through all this that directs everything we do. Let's make 2020 a year that we help people grow. And when they fall, we pick them up. And when we fall, (laughs) we allow people to pick us up. And we, like the father whose son took his inheritance and wasted it, and when decided to come home for all the wrong reasons, what did the father do? He welcomed him with open arms. Amen. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. Really reflects again upon the greatness of our Lord. But as they do that, let me pray for you. Father God, we celebrate this morning. Your love for us, your greatness, we've sung about that. We've practiced that through communion. I pray as 2020 begins and as we navigate, may we become a church that reflects your son. May people look at us and whether they agree or disagree, whether they're angry at us or whether they love us, may they all confess that, you know what, these people act a lot like Jesus. I pray that your word becomes true. I pray that we guard against the false teaching that is often so prevalent in our culture. And I pray for your spirit just to invade our minds and our hearts that we end up doing things far beyond that we are humanly capable of. And when we are struggling, when we're ready to give up, you just empower us to push through. And to finish whatever needs to be finished. Thank you, Jesus. We celebrate your love and your greatness. We pray these things in the name of, in your name, which is a name above every name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.